believe we're okay to start. Getting signals from the back room about our online, uh, what is happening there. But it is a glorious Resurrection Sunday, a glorious Easter Sunday. Uh, just a couple things right as we go into that. Uh, much like much like the Christmas season, uh, uh, there's been a lot of bad information out about Easter, how it's this assumption of a pagan holiday, things like that. Well, I'm here to tell you it's not. A lot of that is based on secondary sources, not not uh, primary sources. Uh, you know, Easter, yeah, there is no Easter in the Bible. You know why? Because it's an English word. It's the word that William Tyndale, in his English translation of the Bible, used to translate Passover. That's where it comes from. Uh, and it comes from the, it's the translation of Passover, you know, it, that, that he used in the English Bible. That's where we get the term Easter from. It's always been associated with the, uh, with the Easter season, with the Passover, because, as we talked about in Sunday school class today, Jesus is sacrificed during the Passover. And we are going to talk a lot about that today. Uh, a lot of the other things that come on there, you'll see things like uh, Ishtar or Esoterra that they claim that Easter is, is related to, and it's not. Much of that came from an atheist by the name of Richard Dawkins about 10 years ago. He puts out a picture and says this is where it comes from. Well, it doesn't. It's just another, it's just another lie of pagans or whatnot to try to, you know, to take away from, that, uh, from the Easter. Uh, but it has, Easter has been... Resurrection Sunday has been celebrated since the early, 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 we're talking within decades of the, of the resurrection of our Lord, and that's why we celebrate it today, and I have no qualms about using the term Easter. Uh, I can talk about that at length if you'd like to, and I could show you the primary sources, so, because I have them. Uh, but that's neither here nor there, because we come to celebrate this day. Uh, we come to uh, talk about this day, about our Lord's resurrection, and it seemed right and fitting to title this sermon, The True Lamb. And there's a reason why I do that, and we are going to take, a, and I, I am, this, is, this will be my first topical sermon in, I don't know, three years, four years. So I'm pretty excited about being able to do one. Uh, but we are going to take a grand tour through the Bible. As you notice that there was uh, uh, one song in the beginning, and that is just to, to be cognizant of everybody else's time today and to have enough time to go through God's Word and to point out some things that uh, should help us not only uh, at dinner last night we were talking about this, that we are constantly, uh, you know, like the Lord our Savior, it says in Isaiah that we, that we are all at various parts of having smoldering wicks in our lives and, and, or we're burnt re or bent reeds, right? So we, when we talk about certain things, it wants to shore up our faith, right? To be sure of what we believe in, to, to take that reed and bend it up straight and bind it up, or to take that smoldering wick and we, we blow air on it to make it inflame, right? To know, and I think we're going to see that today in the message. It's going to be a message in three parts. Uh, the first part is going to be uh, the first Passover, the second part is going to be our sin problem, and the third part is going to be the true lamb, is how we're going to deal with that. And so, Roy did a phenomenal job today in Sunday school class talking about redemption. I would encourage anybody who was not able to attend, or even if you did attend, to go back and listen to it again when we put it, put it online. We put them out on YouTube or whatnot under First Reform, but I encourage you to go and look at that and to listen to that. So the first Passover, and the reason we talk about that is to understand the work of Christ, the second Adam, uh, we need to do a little bit of pre-work. If we just dive right into the New Testament, we see the work of Christ, we kind of miss some of the things that help us to really understand and really just grasp what the, the magnitude of what was done through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And so, in other words, we need to look back before we look forward. Consider for a moment, prior to the first Passover, the Israelites and the Egyptians had a front row seat to the display of power of the only true God. They witnessed 
rivers of blood, frogs infesting everything, including the bedrooms. Interesting, I've said this before, interesting about that is key that the, the passages in there talk about the frogs going into the bedrooms because the Egyptian god of fertility had a head of a frog. I'm telling you what, marital activities are not having, happening in rooms that are full of frogs. It is just not happening, right? There was the gnats, there was the flies, there was all the livestock of the Egyptians was killed. There was boils on the people, hail with fire, locusts, and then darkness where you could not see your hand in front of your face. The darkness one is interesting too because that's an, they're all uh, affronts uh, against gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Uh, darkness would be the god of light. I just believe it falls into Ra is what that one is. And it could be a little bit wrong. I'm just going off the cuff there. But then when there's darkness to the degree that you cannot see your hand in front of your face, it's quite terrifying. And it says in the scripture, it tells us in Exodus 9, 16, it tells us that God is doing this. Uh, and it says, but indeed the reason he's allowed Pharaoh to remain and to do this is in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Exodus 9, 16. But there will be one final plague. We talked about it in Sunday school today. A plague that will cause the Israelites to be, re, to be released from Pharaoh's grip in slavery. 400 plus years in slavery is the plague of the death of the firstborn. Exodus chapter 11, verse 4 and 5, and I, have, uh, I am currently using, uh, the translation I'm using is the LSB, but there, I do have some NASB references, uh, but it should all be fairly clear. Uh, Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, it says this, so Moses said, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, about midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the, of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the servant girl who is behind the millstones, and all the firstborn of the cattle. This is what the Lord's going to do. This is the demonstration of power over life and death. This sets the beginning or the opening stages to the first Passover. That Passover where it's very simple, the Lord will pass over certain homes and he will not enact that plague upon them. And on other homes, he will pass into and kill the firstborn. And there is only one way in which the Lord will pass over certain homes and that's through the sacrifice of a lamb and blood put on the doorposts. That signal where the Lord will pass over. This is the place, this is either the place, depending on, as you're reading the scripture, we see both, it says, because this is a decree by the Lord of the death of the firstborn, we could accurately say it's an angel of the Lord doing it, but it's also the Lord himself doing it, killing the firstborn. The Lord is an active God in his creation. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5 through 7 tells us this. Exodus 12, 5 through 7. Your lamb shall be a male without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Okay, this is what it looks like. This is, they're, they're going to slaughter this lamb that they've kept for a period of time. They're going to they're put the, the, the blood on the doorpost. It is an ugly business. There's nothing pretty about it. There's nothing pretty about slaughtering an animal. It is a shadow of things that are to come. It's a shadow of what will to come with regard to the sin problem that we have. 
If you now come down a little bit and you go to Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, it says these words, And I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God's judgment against the Egyptians. And it all happened just the way the Lord said. It says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 28 and 32, Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight, it's very dark at midnight, midnight, because I'm going to come back to that, so I want you to remember that, at about midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. Now, if we had enough time, we would have looked a little bit further back that the Lord's desire for the release of the Israelites is so that they may worship and serve the Lord God. And now they are released to do that. And that's just the introduction of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to come back to a little bit, a couple of those things, just to draw a point, to draw, to, to, to focus on a little bit later on. But we needed to know that before we talk about the next issue, which is the sin problem of people. The Israelites were released from slavery due to the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. That subsequent death of the firstborn, and remember, it's a, it is, it is, it is a, a first-year male that is, that, is, that, is, that is killed there, And then the subsequent death of the firstborn, the judgment that was enacted in Egypt, is the catalyst for the release of the the Israelites. And they went. Now, we're going to say it wasn't without difficulty that they left. One need only remember that they're backed up against the Red Red Sea with Pharaoh's army coming after them. And And it was parted. So we remember it wasn't without difficulty, but it was as the Lord commanded. Furthermore, we want to remember that they weren't perfect when they left. There certainly was disobedience. But those aren't the main points that we're getting at today. Although their slavery issue was solved, their sin issue was not. Although their slavery issue was solved, their sin problem still existed. And they are now in the service of a righteous and a holy God. We call from Isaiah 6, he is holy, holy, holy. And because they are sinful and they are not holy, nor are they righteous, their relationship with God is limited. God dwells, as we know, in heaven in unapproachable light. When we have visions of the throne room, we see that he is even separated from divine creatures by a sea of glass. But the sin problem needs to be dealt with, and Leviticus gives us the answer. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes the atonement. It is only through blood that we have forgiveness of sin. It is only through blood that we will get redemption, that they will get redemption. Therefore, life must be given to atone for their sin. 
If we had an exceptional amount of time, we could talk through Leviticus 16, which gives us the prescribed manner in which they will do this atonement once per year, a bull sacrifice for the priest, and then you have two goats. One that gets slaughtered so that it can enter the holy place. The other one gets the sins of Israel placed upon their head and sent as the scapegoat into the wilderness. We're going to come back to a little bit of that later on. We have this ritual application of sin upon animals that are sacrificed once per year. And then there are still limitations with that because, number one, it has to be done every year. Number two, the only person that can come in the presence of the Lord is the priest himself. We sometimes forget that that holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sits, where the blood of the lamb or the blood of the goat is sprinkled, is, exists in complete darkness. There is no light, there is no candle that is burning in there. It sits in darkness, hidden behind uh, a, we'll, we'll call it a, a woolen curtain that is somewhere in the neighborhood between three to four inches thick. It is limited how God can be approached. And in a certain manner, the priest must have ritual cleansing, there must be death to animals, there must be a bowl of blood, there must be incense. And only once per year. This atonement is not permanent. Once per year. It certainly doesn't give a final solution to the sin problem. Every year, this thing must be done. Every year, these, these goats must be killed. The bull must be sacrificed for the priest. These, uh, the ritual cleansing must occur. The blood must be sprinkled on the ark. And only then will the Lord's glory appear once. It's not permanent. And if that system fails, well, Judgment is looming, right? I think it's just a big overview of what this is. Because we're here to talk about Jesus, right? We're talking about how that fits into all this, and we're getting there quickly. That sacrificial system is only as good as it is maintained by the priesthood. God has designed it that way. God has designed it to not be permanent. God has designed it to point to something more that is needed. He has told them, you do this and you will learn about my character. You are learning while they are going through the system of killing animals and doing these sacrifices. They're learning how holy God is and how unholy and unrighteous they are. Okay? It is a shadow of what is to come of a final sacrifice, and, but we still need that answer to Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelion, the pre-gospel, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So we still need a solution to that problem. That solution is Jesus Christ. So now, the third part, the true lamb, uh, the true solution to God's wrath, the final problem solving to the problem we have of God's wrath, that God's wrath must be satisfied. Because the blood of bulls and goats does not satisfy that. It is an incomplete sacrifice but completely right for the time it was given, okay? Sin is temporarily dealt with every year, but the solution resides in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, the problems we have here are that God cannot just overlook sin. He cannot just turn a blind eye to what is happening in the world and say, yeah, you're all in. Come on into the party, right? Come on into heaven. Because God is holy, holy, holy. And as I said last week, 
If you don't desire any sanctification here, heaven is going to be hell for you. Right? If you don't desire God's ways here, I'm going to tell you right now, heaven is full of God's ways. Right? So he is holy, holy, holy. The sacrifice of bulls and goats is not permanent, nor is it sufficient for the sin of man. And we could say this, I was going to save it till later, but man, it's just such a good quote. I think it's John Murray who said this. He says, the most profound question in the universe is how a holy God can justify sinners and remain just himself. He could not do so and overlook our sin. And I'm going to stop right there. He can't just say everything's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Everybody's okay. Right? There is no universal salvation. Right? There has to be something because he says that, 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 that the payment for sin is blood, is death. Something has to happen. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, although it might sound crazy in the world we're in right now, but bulls and goats are not people. Okay? They're not a complete substitute for us. And I'll tell you this right now. In a person just on the cross, dying for your sins, is not either because that is a sinful person dying for another sinner. It's not a complete sacrifice. That's our problem. There is no apparent solution in man's mind for this issue. It just looks like a permanent situation. we got to sacrifice bulls and goats, bulls and goats, bulls and goats, bulls and goats, right? But it's not sufficient. It leads to another problem. And by these ways, these are all problems for men, not a problem for God, right? Go to Exodus 33, verse 20. This is going to be our lead into the problem. Because we need, again, I established, right? Bulls and goats aren't sufficient. Neither is a man sufficient. Okay? And God points out the problem to, or this exchange between Moses and God points to the problem. 33.20 says there, Exodus 33.20 says this, But he said, the Lord said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So I want to keep that in mind for a second. So if you keep that in mind, no man can see God but live. But Galatians 4.4. Talking about that true lamb, Galatians 4.4. It says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Our partial, we're working into the solution here. He, at the correct time, at the absolute right time, there was no other better time than the absolute time that God's son, the incarnate Christ, was born. It was the perfect time. He's not born in every age. He's only born once. He's only incarnate once that he comes incarnate on the earth. He sits on the throne incarnate as we speak. But only once does he come. Remember I said, nobody can look at God and, nobody can look at God and live, okay? Uh, a man isn't, isn't, sufficient for a sacrifice for all men's sin. So I need something divine, right, is what I need. That's just logically wise. I need something more to solve that problem. I can't look upon God and live, but it can't be something created either that, that, that does this thing for us, for this sin problem that we have. Remember, bulls and goats don't, have, don't do it. 
Man doesn't have it. I have to have something more. Philippians 2.6. Philippians 2.6. Says this. Who, Jesus, who although he existed, existing in the form of God, existing in the form of God, it is not the past tense, the Greek there is present tense, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, this Jesus who is born of a woman in the fullness of time, did not regard equality God with thing to, a thing to be grasped. Colossians 2.9 tells us that for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay? And then Philippians 2.7 says the following words, and we're going to put them all together right when we're done, right when I'm done here. 2.7 says this. It says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. So this Jesus, who was fully God, who did not divest himself of his divinity, comes incarnate in a body, in a human body, right? Comes in a human body, yet it says he emptied himself. That's that fancy word, kenosis, what we have. There's a lot of crazy things that go about that, but I will say this that this emptying of himself, he does not give up his deity. He doesn't cease to be God. What happens is he gives up his independent use of his deity. He gives up his independent use of his deity. His glory, remember we can't look upon God and live, his glory is veiled in a human body. It says in John that he tented among his people. The one whom was met in the, in the holy of holy places is now walking amongst his people, right? The King James is super accurate. I love the way they say it. Instead of empty, they say, he made himself of no repute. He made himself of no repute. He is fully God and fully man. Two of the greatest and most opposite things that could possibly be become fused in one person. It's what is referred to as the hypostatic union. Both God and man in one. Fused but not confused. When Jesus, it says he emptied himself. Now catch this language. He made himself of no repute. He emptied himself by adding humanity to himself. It was subtraction through addition. He added humanity to his divinity. And how about this? John Murray says, he says, he did not become poor by ceasing to be what he was but he became poor by becoming what he was not. He became poor by addition, not subtraction. He became what he was not, human. And Gregory of Nazianzus dies before 400 AD, says this. Okay, we need, we need a complete sacrifice. Okay, we need fully complete. Needs to be just like us. But needs to, in a sense, he also, he, we shake our heads at this, but it's like this. What Christ has assumed, he has healed. Greg of Nancy S. has said that. So he must fully assume humanity to heal men and women, to save them from sin. He must be complete in that. He can't be, he must be fully man and fully God. And I appreciate that you're hanging with me on this. On an Easter, glorious Easter morning, right? In the fully man, 
was obedient to the Father. Hebrews 5.8 tells us, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And how about this? It was willing action that Jesus did. John 10, 18, turn to John 10, 18. Boy, this is one to know, guys and gals. John 10, 18. If you turn there, it says these words, Jesus' words himself, 10, 18. No one, well, let me, back, let me back up one more verse, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it away from me, but from myself I lay it down. Look, he, this is divinity 100%. I lay my life down. Jesus himself lays his life down. He is not coerced to do it or ordered to do it. He does it in and of himself. Remember, his sacrifice on the cross, the propitiatory substitutionary atonement must be in a prescribed manner or it is insufficient. I'm here to tell you, if we were to die right now, his sacrifice is fully sufficient in the manner in which it was done. He says, for the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself, I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Full divinity here, guys. Full divinity. The only one that has authority over life and death is God himself. It isn't cancer, it isn't brain tumors, it isn't a bad diet. It is God himself who has it. And he says, and I take it up again, this commandment I, I received from my father. I do this thing in my incarnate fleshly body, I fully decide and do these things, right? So we now have a Hopefully, we can see the scriptural basis, the establishment of that incarnate and flesh Jesus as one who is both divine and human, truly God and truly man. As such, he would fit God's requirement for a propitiatory substitution to atone for the sin of men. It needs to be permanent. It needs to be everlasting. It can't be like bulls and goats. So we kind of, we've, we've, we've dived in there for a second. We, we kind of looked at what Jesus, what Jesus is like in flesh, born at the, at the appropriate time, at the exact right time. No different time was available except this exact time when he was born. The time he was born wasn't off by one millisecond. It was absolutely the time. There wasn't a backup time. There wasn't a missed time. It was that time. When he was born, I can't, I, I cannot hold myself back from just saying this. Because Jesus is God, while he was being knit together in the womb, he was holding the entirety of the universe together. And he was holding Mary, his mother, together. Yeah. This is what, what I'm talking about. This, the, the mysterious things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is what is happening. And there are times we just say we can only grasp our minds around a, a little bit of it, but I'm going to tell you what, you can trust it as whole and true because it is God's word and what he says about our Lord and Savior. And now we're going to get into, we're going to start, we're going to start looking back to some of the things we did in the beginning to see how it fits in the now of the crucifixion and how that is important to us as sinners saved by grace. Luke 9 verse 28, Luke 9, verse 28. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, 
Now it happened some eight days after these words that taking along Peter and John and James, he went up on the mountain to pray. So there's four people. And it happened that while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah. We do recall Moses from earlier in Exodus. Moses and Elijah, verse 31, who, appearing in glory, so they're also appearing in glory in a different form. Now remember this. Peter, James, and John had never met Moses or Elijah. But they certainly recognized Moses and Elijah when they're, stand, when, he's, when they're standing with Jesus on the mount. But I want you to, you're going to key in on one word here. I'm going to have to do the translation of it for you because it's important. Who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his, of Jesus's, departure, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. The Greek word that is used there is used three times in the New Testament. That Greek word is exodus. His departure, his exodus, is what they were talking about. Three times it's used, Hebrew 11.22, when talking about the exodus with Moses, in 2 Peter 1.15, where Peter uses the same term to talk about his death. There is a specific use of this word exodus, and it is pulled directly from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Exodus means exodus like we know from the book of Exodus. That is all about the exodus of the Israelites, and Jesus is using that term, God is using that term in his words to talk about something with Christ himself that is going to be his exodus. And this exodus is going to be far greater than the exodus of the Israelites out of slavery. This is going to be about the exodus that is going to occur to save sinful men from the wrath of God out of their slavery to sin. If we look further on in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says this, Now it happened that when the days for him to be taken up were soon to be fulfilled, it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. I'm here to tell you from the moment he was born, his face was fully set to the cross. There was not a moment of time where he varied from going to the cross. Everything that he did and every miracle he performed and every teaching that he did was all with the cross looming ahead for the necessary work where he willingly lays down his life. <clears throat> Jesus was always departing on the way to the cross. His incarnation was always on the road to the cross. Jesus is the true lamb that Exodus 12 presents a shadow of. He is the firstborn male substitute. He is, John 1.14 tells us, he is the only begotten of the Father. Now understand, was slightly here, that Jesus is not created. He has always been, he has always been the Son to the Father, as the Father has always been the Father, as the Holy Spirit has always been the, the Holy Spirit. For eternity, and will continue to be for an eternity. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. You could look at various accounts. Mark 11, for example, you'll find that the triumphal entry. With, the, with looking at the Temple Mount, he is coming into Jerusalem, right? He sees the temple before him, and he comes to the fanfare that this is the king who has come. Fortunately, he comes as a true king and not the king that they desire. Now remember back to, I want you to recall back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, where it says, Now it happened at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle 
Then Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. The Lord struck the dead, the firstborn of Egypt, to secure the release of the Israelites. The Lord struck dead, the firstborn of Egypt, to secure the release of the Israelites from their bondage to slavery. And now listen to the words in Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Jesus is on the cross. Nailed to the cross. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land, upon all the land, until the ninth hour. Now, if you recall what I just read, in Exodus, it was dark when the firstborn were struck. And if you'll also recall what I just said, that Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus, his departure. And now it says that Jesus is on the cross and there is darkness upon the land until the ninth hour. Like the darkness that was in Egypt the night that the firstborn were struck. That darkness is signifying God's presence passing through the land. And that presence of God will be focused on his only begotten son. The one who became sin, who knew no sin. That blood on the cross now signifies exactly who God is going to be focused upon. It is not the devil that kills Jesus. It is God himself who does this. This work is not given over to somebody else. This is what God does. Jesus takes upon sin, the man who was no sin, he becomes the embodiment of sin. And it says in verse 46, in about the ninth hour, Jesus, what he cried out, hold it, wasn't there a cry out in the land of Egypt when the firstborn were killed? In quoting from Psalm 22, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry that Jesus goes out, the death of a firstborn, is happening there. And God is doing it like he did it in Egypt. That shadow that happened in Egypt is truly happening to the true lamb in Jerusalem. And where does he stand? Now, you, now, now we're pulling in some things that are there that are, that are unbelievable. If we were to go back and look at, we were, we were going to go back and look at Leviticus, we would find out that this death occurs uh, outside of the city, outside of the temple, where the sinners are at, where the non-Jews are at. There are so many shadows that go in here with this substitutionary atonement that is occurring here that we just don't have enough time to see it. But I'm telling you right now, that when he talked about his exodus, which was his death on the cross, with Moses and Elijah, and then the cry goes out here, like the cry went out in the land of Egypt when it was dark as it is dark here. And then it says in verse 47 through 50, it says, and some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them were saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And the son was killed by the father. On that day, two days ago, as the sons of Egypt were killed, the firstborn, the only begotten was struck dead on the cross. The one who took the wrath of God on that cross, the one who took the wrath of God in eternity's worth of wrath for the sins of those that would believe. 
And then, verse 51, it says, And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The barrier is torn. The separation between God and man is gone. The light of the sun, the one who it was veiled in, in his glory in the flesh to live the life that we, we, that we could not live, to die the death that we could not die, is the punishment of sin falls upon him. That barrier is struck down. The thing that separates God and man, the thing that before was the only place where one priest could go in once per year. So whereas the events of Egypt, in Egypt, secured the release of the Israelites from slavery so that they may serve and worship God, the death of the true Lamb of God on the cross secures the release of men and women from death and slavery to sin that they may serve and worship the Lord. And the clarity and sufficiency of the act is revealed as the women come to the tomb. Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 1 and 6. This is where we come to Easter, the celebration. Luke chapter 20, 24, verses 1 through 6. Now on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And, the, and when the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. He is not here, but he has risen. This is the great thing about the celebration of Easter. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross accomplished exactly what it was meant to do. The release of all who would believe from the slavery to sin and to bring them into the right relationship with God as sons and daughters, and we know that this has been secured because he is risen again. Hebrews uh, chapter 6 verse 19 tells us that that is the anchor that penetrates within the true veil in heaven, right? Because the tomb was empty. It is that thing that we are secured on this anchor of Christ. It does not shift. It does not move. It does not waver. It is drawn tight on that anchor that we cannot move when found in Christ Jesus. He has risen, and that is the sign that the sacrifice was pleasing and accepted by God. The true lamb sits upon the throne, interceding for all believers right now. So I'll go back to that John Murray quote, the, the most profound question in the universe is how a holy God can justify sinners and remain just himself. He could not do so and overlook our sin. He did so by pouring out his wrath on his son instead of us so that by grace through faith we may be saved. Turn with me to Romans chapter, 20, uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 24. Romans chapter 3 verse 24 through 26 where it says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. True lamb, he sits on the throne right now, interceding for us. This is a truth that you can give your life to. This is that truth I mentioned earlier today that why hold on, as that missionary said, why hold on to the life we cannot keep when we can give that life up to him and gain that which we cannot lose? 
abiding in Jesus, repenting and believing. 1 Peter 1, chapter 18 through 19 says this, if we know our Lord and Savior, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your, forefa- from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the perfect lamb, the blood of Christ, the true lamb. John chapter 1, verse 29 says, on the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Ladies, gentlemen, you can trust in this truth more than anything else in your, in your life. You can trust in this more than your bank account, more than your friends, more than your family, more than your husband or your wife. You can trust in Jesus Christ as a complete Savior, as one who will see you into the afterlife, who will see you into the heavenly realm, so you will see those translucent streets of gold. You can trust in the work that he has done, that it is finished, that tetelestai that I've seen running across the Greek word. It is finished, complete, there is nothing more to do. There is no more sacrifices to be made. There is nothing for you to do except to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. To know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I would hope that if you do not know him, that you would come see one of us to talk about what that, who that Savior is. And I would trust that on those who are believers, that on this glorious Easter day, that you find more and more hope in that Savior who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, who has risen again and sits on the throne interceding for all believers there are. I will give that quote. That is Robert Murray McShane, who said, Jesus, if I were to know If I were to hear Jesus sitting in the next room, hear him praying for me, I would not fear a million enemies. But distance makes no difference. He is praying for you as a believer. Bow our heads. Glorious and heavenly Father, thank you for this day and your word. Uh, Thank you that we are given understanding of your word. Thank you that you have found us in salvation. We ask that you're with us throughout this day of this Easter day, this glorious Resurrection Sunday. Please be with all those who are here today as they travel or maybe go to friends and families. Give us the courage to preach the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.